Today I wanted to um, talk a little bit about our practice um, and maybe locate it um, in the um, Buddhist tradition. I don't want to get into a lot of detail about it. Um, you can read all of this um, history and um, philosophy and um, all the, you know, the logistics of uh, Buddhist practice and Zen practice. Um, I want to be, just begin by making the distinction uh, between the Theravada tradition and the Mahayana tradition. And Oan is um, in the Mahayana tradition, um, which is a, a later um, development in Buddhist thought uh, than the Theravada. From the Mahayana point of view, the Theravada uh, is what is called the lesser vehicle, uh, the, the tradition of the elders, and this is the earliest one. And the Mahayana is a later, um, a, a later tradition. Um, there are many differences between Theravada Buddhism and uh, Mahayana. But the one I want to emphasize today is the, the fact that in Mahayana tradition, the um, individual achievement of enlightenment, which is what is most significant in the Theravada tradition, um, where you strive for personal enlightenment. And the ultimate expression of that usually is to become a monk, to enter a monastery or to become a hermit and to live in the mountains and to simply experience your freedom. Um, so it's a much more personal um, way than the Mahayana. And in the Mahayana we emphasize the role of the place of the Bodhisattva which, who is a being whose enlightenment is not, a, whose personal enlightenment is not as important as the enlightenment of all beings. So um, this is an individual who doesn't make the shift from his or her own breakthrough into enlightenment and that of every other being. So there isn't that separation between I'm an individual, I have achieved what I set out to achieve, I put all the effort in, and now I'm gone. I am turning back into the world and bringing all beings along with me on my way. And so in, in some people think that the Mahayana tradition is much more liberal, that it isn't just for monastics, it isn't just for people who wear robes, uh, it's for everyone. It's, it's everyone, including the pumpkin, <laughs> practices. I mean, it's always a, was always a little surprising to me when I passed the altar and, and was bowing to the pumpkin. Um, uh, but, I mean, there could, there could be anything up there. Um, there could be a, 
a teacup or a toothpick or a Buddha. You know, in the Mahayana tradition, all things, all beings, um, move toward enlightenment together. And so there is no, it's open to everyone. Um, within the, the Mahayana tradition, there are two major schools. One is the Soto school and the other is the Rinzai school. Uh, again, you can go online and find all kinds of details about the difference between the two, and I invite you to do that. And maybe some of you have already <laughs> done that. But um, from my point of view, um, the Soto tradition I will describe more as a gentle um, a gentle way. Um, it is, um, if I use the metaphor of climbing a mountain, in the Rinzai tradition, and often they use koans to achieve this kind of lightning strike of a breakthrough, if you're traversing this mountain of the way, in the Rinzai tradition, the tendency is to go straight up to the top. So there's this, the, the, all of the, you know, the resistance, the hindrances, and you cut through those. And that's why often in the Rinzai tradition they'll use the um, kiyosaku, the stick, because that, that's like an instant wake up. So this instantaneous, sometimes called kensho, uh, that's more the Rinzai tradition. It's almost kind of a little bit militaristic. You know, it's, it's very strong and powerful. I could illustrate, actually, the difference between the Rinzai and the Soto by uh, relating a story about my own experience with a Rinzai teacher, um, and I practiced with him for quite a number of years. And... Um, at one sashin, um, they were using the kiyosaku. And it's very, um, I mean, it's very, it's not random. It's not, it's very clear practice, the person who's wielding it. And usually you have to ask to be hit. So if you feel you're sleeping or you're drifting or you need some wake-up assistance, you just raise your hand, and as that person with the kiyosaku comes around, they will hit you, sometimes twice, sometimes three times, uh, on a very specific point in your shoulder, in your shoulders. It's, it's sort of like cutting through the joints of an ox, sometimes they call it. And, it. and you have to really know how to do it, otherwise you can seriously hurt someone. And so I was sitting and I hadn't yet asked for the Kiyosaku, but I heard what it sounded like <laughs> as she, it was a nun who was going around doing this. And I thought one day, yeah, I'm going to see what that's like. Um, even though it, every time I heard it, it was But I got my courage up, but I decided, <laughs> just in case, 
I was going to wear my down vest under my, under my robes. <laughs> and just in case it was going to hurt too much. So she was going around and I was hearing this, you know, really loud, very severe cracking. And she came around and I put my hand up and it, it went Thump. <laughs> <laughs> Afterwards, she told me that she was really surprised. She didn't expect to hear that sound. Um, and it, for me, that sort of illustrates the difference between a Rinzai and a Soto. Um, if, if we were, and we are practicing Soto practice, um, we would not be heading straight up to the top of the mountain in one blow you know, just pushing through, like the hit of the stick, we would be going up the mountain using, what do they call those? Um, switchbacks. Hmm? Switchbacks. Switch yeah, we'd be using switchbacks. And we'd kind of be enjoying the scenery. <laughs> as, and we might, you know, sort of drift back down and then drift back up. And so it's a much more gentle um, practice. And it typically doesn't use the koan, but um, in, in our lineage, um, which is the Kobanchino lineage of Soto practice, it's, it has the features of the freedom and liberality of Mahayana tradition open to everyone. It has the, um, the gentleness and the... Um, the openness and the permissiveness of Soto Zen. And it also has the practice of what, what I wrote down on the eraser board is Shikantaza, which, um, again, you can look this up, but generally speaking, Shikan means just, pure, um, undefiled, um, top means kind of strike, just do it. Um, and za means sitting, meditating. So put all that together and you've got just pure sitting. No method, no counting breaths, no Ask no gaining idea, no, like I'm trying to achieve this. Um, no added thing. Just sitting in this availability, in this open, vast space, and allowing whatever arises to arise. So, um, uh, Dogen, who is considered the founder of uh, Soto Zen. Um, his teacher was Rujing, Chinese master. And his teacher was Hongxi, who um, many attribute the uh, development of what is called silent illumination, or it, this is the spirit of Shikantaza. And 
this is a, a book uh, called Cultivating the Empty Field, and it's often used as a classic uh, text for those who are practicing uh, shikantaza. Um, and I'll just read you a little bit of um, what this practice is. The practice of true reality is simply to sit serenely in silent introspection. When you have fathomed this, you cannot be turned around by external causes and conditions. This empty, wide open mind is subtly and correctly illuminating. So I'm just going to add my commentary. This open mind illuminates, that's all you need, just to keep your mind open and it will illuminate what it needs to. Spacious and content, without confusion from inner thoughts of grasping, so no attaching, effectively overcome habitual behavior and realize the self that is not possessed by emotions. You must be broad-minded, whole, without relying on others. Such upright, independent spirit can begin not to pursue degrading situations. So this, this kind of open, spacious mind isn't pulled, pulled around, pushed around by external conditions or even internal conditions. Here you can rest and become clean, pure, and lucid. Bright and penetrating, you can immediately return, accord, and respond to deal with events. So I showed some of you um, when you were here that my teacher wrote, this comes from Hung Shui, return, accord, respond. So in Shikantaza, we are returning to our true nature, just returning to the source, sitting quietly at the source of the stream, just being open. And when we, when we re return to that source, <coughs> And that's what we do when we come to Oan. We're coming home. We're returning to our source. And then we accord with it, like focusing a lens. We accord with that place. We come into oneness with it. We settle into it. And from that place, we can respond to things as they arise. Everything is unhindered. Clouds gracefully floating up to the peaks, the moonlight glitteringly flowing down mountain streams. The entire place is brightly illumined and spiritually transformed. Totally unobstructed and clearly manifesting responsive interaction. Continuing 
Cultivate and nourish yourself to embody maturity and achieve stability. If you accord everywhere with thorough clarity and cut off sharp corners without dependence on doctrines, you can be called a complete person. So the complete person, which is who we really are when we return to this place of wholeness, accords with everything as it is, just as it is. And by doing that, you complete yourself because you're one with everything, just as it is. So we hear that this is how one on the way of non-mind acts. But this is what Hong Shui ends with. But before realizing non-mind, we still have great hardship. So, um, this silent illumination is not easy. And each of you knows how, where the difficulties arise in, in your own practice. It, this is, in our lineage, in the Kobenchino lineage, Coben always stressed that your practice is totally individual, totally determined by you, decided by you. Um, no dependent on doctrines, no dependence on, that's why I, I rarely talk about doctrinal things, because it's, that's not what it's about. It's about a highly personal practice. And you're totally supported in that. Uh, whatever your practice turns out to be, it's your practice. Wherever you're struggling, wherever you're suffering, um, it's your practice. Um, and different times in your life, you're going to suffer in different ways. I have to tell you that today, I mean, I'm, I'm struggling with stuff. Um, and it was interesting that one of our Sangha members, you know, had to, had to leave for whatever reason. And I felt that way. I felt, I have to leave. I, I don't, I want to go outdoors. I want to go walk in the woods. I just want to pace back and forth. <laughs> I don't want to be here. Um, and I got up and started Kinhin. And really for the first time in all the years that I've practiced, I felt like the practice was doing me. I, I really didn't, I wasn't in control. My impulse was to get out. Um, I didn't feel like I could sit for this or walk. I just had to get out. And the practice just carried me forward. Just. I didn't really have any choice in the matter. 
So it, it was very interesting for me that Hong Shui talks about there's still going to be hardship. This is not this is not about the way is not about just being blissful all the time. You have to in your own way, in your own uh, set of circumstances, have to penetrate deeply into who you really are and what your practice is. Um, Coben also, and in Zen practice generally, uh, there's a lot of attention given to posture. Um, and this particular posture of the sitting Buddha uh, is considered the most um, amenable to opening the mind in the way that Hong Shui describes. Uh, it's very grounding. Um, it's very stable. It's very centering, connected with the earth, and also very, from your hips up, very open and very uh, spacious. So this is strong, your base, your spine is like an oak tree or a golden thread, and everything else is open and spacious and soft. Um, and often, when, in the later years of, uh, of his teaching, when Coben was asked questions by his students, he would just come around and adjust their posture. That, that was the answer, again and again and again. And it was, it was kind of interesting to me, because there really are no answers um, to any of these questions. <laughs> you know, it's your... It's your answer. It's your not relying on anybody else for an answer. So Coben would come and just re resit you, <laughs> you know, re restabilize you and touch you and just bring you back to your own practice. Um, so your this is a, a body practice too. It's, it's very much about being present, fully awake, in your full inhabiting of your body. <laughs> you have to inhabit every cell, every, every sensation that you're having. You have to inhabit it all. You know, just allow everything to become present. Um, and one of the one of the often neglected features of posture and just the way you're sitting um, for me, and I kind of discovered this kind of personal in my personal practice, is this you know Buddha has a very specific form, but he also has a little smile, you know, like a little half smile. And, um, and one day I was really noticing that. And it was almost as if I saw a little cartoon, um, you know, bubble uh, above his head saying, oh, there I go again. <laughs> um, 
or look at me, how, you know, how crazy my mind is. Um, and then just smiling <laughs> to himself, you know, having, having com compassion. So for me, um, I often speak not just of the form of your posture, but of the quality of, of your emotional quality. Of, you know, I had to do that a lot today. You know, just sort of smile. I have this little smile of compassion for myself and say, okay, you know, there you are again. There you are again. There you are again. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Just... And sometimes that smile, that little internal smile, can bring you back to the present moment. So it functions not just, you know, breath often functions in a way that people use to bring themselves back to this moment, because when you're aware of your breath, you have to be present, because each breath is present. So when you smile at yourself, or with yourself, you're also coming back to the present moment. You, you know, oh, look at that. There I am again. So um, I think pretty much I want to end with that smile. <laughs> Um, and then invite you to, if you have any questions or want to make any comments or you want to pursue some detail of this, we can do that. So. Do we have a little bit of time? About one minute. <laughs> <laughs> I have a habit of doing that. But, uh, yeah, are there questions or comments? Probably shouldn't have just said we had a minute. <laughs> we can do a lot in a minute. Well, let me just mention quickly two other aspects of practice that um, one is called uh, shamatha, and the this is the um, Sanskrit. And the other is vipassana. Um, and shamatha, there's often described as these two dimensions to practice. Uh, shamatha is, is kind of calming the mind, settling down. And vipassana is insight. So, and there is a vipassana tradition in this country. Uh, that's another very strong sort of American expression of Zen, uh, insight meditation or Vipassana. And there are many teachers and uh, centers where you can practice, uh, you know, insight meditation. Um, and so though it's like wisdom and compassion in our practice come together. Um, it's, it's the opening of the mind, the settling of the mind, and the compassion, the, uh, the, the not intellectual insight, but total person insight, really experiencing directly reality.
the oneness of all things. So wisdom and compassion. Shamata vipassana. And there are many ways to look at our practice. You know, I've been, you know, pulling up words and trying to sort of access, uh, you know, clarify, illuminate a little bit of what we're, what, what oan is and what where oan is located in the tradition. But in the last analysis, it's you. It's just you, your life, your path. Probably used up the minute, right? Good. <laughs>